0: All right. So we're going to look at chapter 16. We're not going to do the entire book. We're going to stop and leave part of it for next week. It's because it fits better into next week than it does this week. But last week we looked at chapter 15 and John uh, saw some pretty incredible things. And if you keep, uh, keep in mind that John is obviously seeing into the future, that's the whole premise of the book. It's looking into the future, the end times. But Periodically, like in chapter 15, he's seeing far into the future, and he's seeing the end of the end times, and then there's going to be almost immediately he reverses in time, and he sees something previous to that. So there's a lot of, at least in these couple of chapters, there's some chronological skipping around. So it can be kind of hard to understand sometimes what's going on. But he saw the the reaping of the earth. He saw Jesus Christ reaping, and then he had assistant from an angel and they were reaping those on the earth. And I think it's particularly referring to those who've taken the mark of the beast and have refused to accept the gospel message. remember the 144,000 have shared it. The two witnesses have shared it. The angel flying through the mid heavens has shared it. And yet people are still rejecting it and they have aligned themselves with antichrist and by virtue of that with Satan. And so they're going to be reaped. Then he stepped backward in time, or God took him back in time, and he saw the martyrs, the tribulation martyrs in heaven, and they're singing before the throne, before that sea of glass. And they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb, which is really a song of redemption, the salvation of God. And they're rejoicing over the fact that even though they died as a result of their faith, the the passage tells us they were beheaded. For whatever reason, that seems to be Antichrist's mode of execution. He beheads them, and they die for their faith, but they end up where? Standing before God in heaven, and they're rejoicing. Why? Because of the victory of God. And then he sees the seven angels with the seven bowls, which is going to open up chapter 16 for us. But I want to touch on something that's kind of interesting. We, we know there's seven angels, because it clearly tells us there's seven angels, And they carry what are called seven plagues. Okay, we we said last week that word literally means a blow. It's not anything to do with disease. It could be a disease, but it could be hailstones. It could be fire, as we'll see, scorching heat. But it's a blow from God. It's a direct blow from God. You don't ever want a direct blow from God, okay? Um, I don't think you want to glancing blow from God, but this is a direct blow from God. So that's what these things are. And it says these angels were carrying these seven plagues. That's how the passage opens up. But then they're given seven golden bowls. And those seven golden bowls are what we're going to see poured out. So what happens is there's debate over, are these the same thing or are they different things? Are the plagues something different? So are there seven plagues and then are there seven bowls of judgment? So if you do the math, that would mean 14 things. Well, I, I don't think we're really looking at 14 things. I, I think it's just the way the passage is structured. These these bowls are pretty interesting. They're, the description is they're shallow. Uh, and I think the whole idea is they... They hold the wrath of God, but when they get tipped over to be poured out, it just dumps out. And there's not, it's not the, the quantity as much as the quality of the wrath. They're shallow bows and they're not, it's the only time this phrase, this word is used is right here in Revelation. So they don't tie into the temple. They don't tie into anything having to do with the sacrificial system. There's something completely different. It's the wrath of God. So we we just have to figure out what are these seven bowls and are the seven bowls and the seven plagues the same thing? My my contention is they are. And and I'll I'll kind of show you why I land there. So let's go back to the beginning of chapter 15 real real briefly. John says, Then I saw what? Another sign in heaven. What's the sign? Great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. So he sees something. Now this is in the past tense. He gets taken by God, he's seeing into the future, and then he's writing it down, and he says, when I got taken there, I saw something. What did I see? I saw seven angels with seven plagues. And then he goes on, he says, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So whatever these things are, these seven angels with these seven plagues, he says, it's the last. It's the the wrath of God getting ready to be poured out. So I think verse 1 of chapter 15 is a summary statement by John. It's him writing down for you and I, here's what happened. I went, I saw, here's what I saw. And it summarizes, I saw these seven angels. And it encompasses the rest of chapter 15. I went, I saw seven angels with seven plagues, seven blows from God. So they're obviously then handed seven bowls. That's what the passage goes on to say. But he initially says, I saw them with seven plagues, and then he goes on to say, and they were handed seven bowls. That's what the passage says. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So if you read it kind of chronologically, I saw seven angels, seven plagues, then I saw them given seven bowls. It's two different things. It's 14 things now. But again, I don't think that's the way this is structured. I don't think that's what he means because he goes on and says, these are the bowls full of the wrath of God. It's all about the wrath of God. That's the point of this passage. It's not about the plagues. It's not about the bowls. It's about the wrath of God. Because he goes on and says, they couldn't enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So he's really using these two things as synonyms, plagues, bowls, plagues, bowls. So again, are they the same or are they different? Are they seven things or 14 things? Here's what I think it means. The plagues are the content. It's the wrath of God, the blows of God, the bowls are the containers. They're the means of distribution. Okay, they're carrying them out of the presence of God and they're gonna pour them out. What are they pouring out? The wrath of God. So the plagues are just simply a definition or a description of the content, the plagues, the wrath, the anger, and the bowls are the means by which they're going to be distributed, which brings us to chapter 16. And it says, then I, John, heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So what are they going to do with these bowls? Remember, we saw at the end of chapter 15 that the doors to the temple are shut. John sees the door shut, meaning no more access to God. Here's all you're going to get from me from this point forward. No more mercy, no more grace. It's just pure wrath. Door shut, and out come the angels, and they've got these seven bowls, and they're going to pour them out on the earth. Now, I want to just take a second to, to emphasize this idea of the wrath. Again, the bowls are just the delivery um, means, and the real issue is what's inside the bowls, and it's this thing called the wrath of God. I have never, I don't think, ever experienced the wrath of God. I have experienced the wrath of my dad. I have experienced the wrath of our police system in this country at times for things I've done really stupidly in my past. Um, I've experienced the wrath of others, but I've never really experienced what this is talking about, the full, unadulterated, undiluted wrath of God. And the word here has to do with rage. Uh, It's really, uh, it's heat, intense heat from God, burning heat of God's anger against sin. And we've talked about this before, and I think it's important for us to always keep in mind that God hates sin. I hope that's not new to you. God hates sin. God loathes sin. We only hate sin when it does harm to us. Uh, As long as it's fun and pleasant, we enjoy it. And we hate the sins of others. Even though they may enjoy it, we hate it. And especially if their sin impacts us in some way. But God hates, loathes sin. And so what we're going to see in this passage is God pouring out his full anger, wrath, judgment against sin. What does that mean? Well, Romans 3, Paul tells us, If our unrighteousness, and he's writing to believers that at some point in my life and your life, we were unrighteous before God. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. We stood as unrighteous, but he goes on and says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? See, when when our sin, when we come to grips with our sin, that we are sinners and we are unrighteous and we can't do anything about it, no matter how many good deeds I do, I can't make myself righteous it proves that only God is righteous. That's, what, that's his point. But then he goes on, and he says, that God is unrighteous to, shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? See, if we are outside of Christ, we don't have a relationship with him, we are what? Unrighteous. Is God unjust to punish us? Is he unrighteous to punish us? Now, this side of salvation, we will all say no. No, he, we deserve to be punished, and that's Paul's point. God is just, God is right, God is pure, God is holy. He never punishes unjustly. Then he goes on, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? See, what we're seeing in this whole book is what? God judging the world. It's the last judgments of God against the world, and what is it made up of? It's made up of his wrath, and it's always just and right. You and I get angry. It's just part of our nature. We, we explode. We get mad. Some of us are kickers. We kick inanimate objects. We kick the dog. We kick the cat. We, get, we scream. We cuss. We do whatever. How we show our anger, we get angry. But rarely is our anger just and right. Maybe occasionally, but it's always tinted and tainted by sin. Not God's. He's always just and right. He never punishes anyone unjustly. And that's amazing. And we're going to see that everything we're going to see is is violent, it's difficult, it's harsh, but it's just because it's coming from God. And what is it against this word, unrighteousness? This is the whole key to understanding the rest of what's going to happen in chapter 16. Paul tells the Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And if you want to boil unrighteousness down to its bare essence, it's a rejection of the truth. And it it comes in the form of I'm not a sinner, I don't commit sin, and I don't need a savior. What's the truth? No, you are a sinner, you are condemned, and you desperately need a savior. But they reject the truth. What's happening on the planet? When John sees into the future, he sees people being punished by God. And as we're going to see in this chapter, they reject God out of hand. They refuse to accept their own sinfulness. And what do they do? They curse God. They curse him rather than curse themselves. They say, no, we don't like you. We don't want you. We prefer Satan. We prefer Antichrist. They suppress the truth. And it all has to do with unrighteousness and ungodliness. He tells the Colossians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So here Paul is giving us a really clear definition. We we can talk about, well, God hates unrighteousness, okay? Then I'll define what that is. Unrighteousness is anything you do that I don't do, okay? Isn't that what the world does? That's the whole problem we have in this country right now is that my view of what's moral is what's important, not yours. But the truth is, what I think is immoral and what you think is immoral doesn't matter. It's what does God think. And that's his point here. And look at this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, all of it's idolatry. It's worshiping of something or someone other than who? God. God. And I really have a hard time getting my head around what it's going to be like on the earth in the end times during the tribulation, how bad it's going to be. Because I look at this world and I go, how much worse can it get when we are at a point as a country when we're ready to take the lives of newborn babies because they inconvenience the mother? How much worse can it get? Based on what I've read in this book so far, a lot worse. So take all these things and amp them up. Put them on steroids and you're going to see that it's going to be immorality like we've never seen before, impurity like we've never seen before, uncontrolled passions and desires like we've never seen before, people doing things that we would find incredibly offensive and God's going to pour out his wrath. See, God hates sin. God hates sin in my life. He hates it in your life. And yet then in this day when he's talking about it's going to be bursting out of the seams. It's the picture we saw of the reaping. It's the grapes that have been on the vine too long, and they're literally bursting with unrighteousness. That's what the world is going to look like. And again, I kind of think we're there. That's why a lot of people think we're already in the tribulation. Well, we are in a tribulation because Jesus says you will have trials and tribulation, but he wasn't talking about this. This is a, something of a different nature because it's going to bring the full wrath of God. We are not living right now under the full wrath of God, and we should thank God that we're not. But it's coming, because God's patience is going to run out. God is going to deal. Numbers tells us the Lord is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, and that's the God we love to worship. That's the God everybody's attracted to, but they've got to keep reading. But he does not excuse the guilty. He can't. Why? Because he's God, because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he's just. He cannot turn to blind, blind eye to sin. He can't act like it didn't happen. He can't say, "Boys will be boys." He can for a time, which is what he's doing, you know these decisions that are being made in our country, and more of them are to come, I guarantee it, they''ll. they'll happen in state after state after state, just like we've seen same sex marriage and other things that are going to get passed in state after state after state. He will be patient, but he will not excuse their actions. The day of judgment's going to come. And that's what we're looking at here. So now the bowls start getting poured out and you're going to see them come in rapid fire succession. What's amazing in this chapter is that each bowl takes up basically one verse and it's almost like machine gun fire it's it's just like bam 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 one after the other with no breather in between so here's the first one the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped worshiped its image who's going to be affected Anyone who's taken the mark of the beast, anyone who worships Antichrist, anyone who's decided to bow down to the image of Antichrist is sitting in the temple because it's the way they buy and sell. It's the way they live and exist. And so what's going to happen? They're going to get painful sores. It's a specific group. And it infers that all those outside of that group, and there's basically three groups on earth at this time, there are those who've taken the mark of the beast There are unbelievers, Gentiles and Jews who, for whatever reason, have refused to take the mark of the beast and are suffering for it. And then there are all those, both Jew and Gentile, who have accepted Christ and have the mark of the Lamb and the mark of God. So those are your three groups. This is going to fall on one particular group, all those who worship the Antichrist. And they're going to get painful sores. Now, you may look at that and go, well, that's not that bad. I've had a few painful sores. How bad can it be? Well, let's get gross. It's literally inflamed, oozing, ulcerous, cancerous sores. And we know elsewhere in the scriptures, it's from the bottoms of your feet to the top of your head. It's it's literally going to be on every square inch of their bodies. Now, I have never had that. I have had almost third degree burns from the sun. That's the worst thing I've ever experienced experienced in my life. But I've never had this. So everyone, you got to keep this in mind. Everyone who has bowed down to Antichrist is going to be covered with these things and they're going to be walking around in misery and they're going to see all these people who don't have it. How do you think they're going to feel? Are they going to love these people? Especially the ones who have the mark of the lamb and the mark of God, but they're going to be angry. We took the mark of the beast because we thought it was going to be great and now look what's happening. And it reminds us of the plague that God sent on the Egyptians all the way back in the book of Exodus. That plague, which included sores, was temporary. And this one seems to be it's, it's going to last until these people die. It doesn't go away after a week. And it's a picture, I think, of what their eternity is going to be like. The Scriptures make it really clear that hell is not a pretty place, it's not a pleasant place. There is pain, there is suffering, physical pain and suffering, emotional pain, psychological pain and suffering. But I think this is what it's going to be like for eternity. He's giving them a taste of what the future is going to look like. And what hits me is that these people that have taken the mark of the beast are getting a mark from God. And I think, I think it's going to be so bad that whatever that mark is in their forehead or their, their wrists, you won't even be able to see it because of the number of the sores on their bodies. You want to take a mark? You don't want my mark. You don't want the mark of the lamb and the mark of God, but you'll take the mark of the beast. Guess what? I'm going to give you another mark, and it's going to cover your entire body. So just keep in mind the pain, the suffering, because we're not done yet. That's the first one. Second one, second angel pours out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. So this one gets poured out in the sea. Now, let's just stop right here, because I know somebody's out there going... This, this is too weird. Th- this can't be real. This has to be figurative. As I've told you all along, the way I'm approaching this book is if, if, if the only reason I can't, can't take it literally is because I find it hard to believe, that's a bad reason to not take it literally. Now, we're seeing something pretty fantastic that we're going to see the angel pour out this bowl, and it's going to turn the entire seas of the earth into blood, Literal blood? Why not? Why not believe it's literal blood? Well, Ken, that's impossible. Okay, who's doing this? God, the God who made the universe, the God created the land we live on and the bodies we live within. And as you know, so far as I can tell, the Bible says, nothing is impossible for God. So if God wants to turn the seed of blood, he can do whatever he wants. So I'm going with that's exactly what's going to happen and everything in the seas dies. Well, you can imagine, yes. Every air breathing creature, whales, porpoises, every fish, they're all going to die. And this is not the first time this has happened, right? Again, you go all the way back to Exodus and what did God do? He turned the blood in the Nile, the water in the Nile to blood. You know, what's fascinating about that is that there are commentators to say, well, it didn't really, it wasn't really blood, it was red algae. It was a common occurrence for that to happen at periodic times of the year in Egypt. What's interesting is that none of the Egyptians referred to it as algae. They referred to it as what? Blood. And they couldn't drink it because it was blood. They didn't go, well, it's algae. Remember, it happened last year at the same time. No, it's blood. And I think this is Blood. And we've already seen earlier in the same book, Revelation, he did this as well. He turned a third of the seas to blood after the second trumpet. The second angel sounded, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died. He's done this before, but he's done it on a smaller scale. This was a case of in chapter 8 of, I'm going to give you a partial glimpse of my wrath, but I'm not going to give it full tilt. That comes in chapter 16. Because now it's, it's going to be total worldwide destruction of the seas. All the seas turned to blood. Now, again, you got to, everything's cumulative. We've seen a lot of stuff happen already up to this point. Third of the seas turned to blood already. Now all the seas turned to blood. We've had hail. Uh, We've had uh, destruction come from the sky. We've had demons come out of the earth. We've had so much already happening. And this is on top of all that. And you've got all these people walking around with sores all over them. And so now the seas have turned to blood. Not a happy day to be alive. And then comes the third one. The third angel pours out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they become blood. Jiminy Crickets, what, you know, how much worse is this gonna get? Oh, it's gonna get a lot worse. And it's all building on top of itself. Again, blood, is it real blood? I think so. And it's it's really what we saw earlier in the book with the third trumpet, but it's intensified. A third of the waters became wormwood and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. It became poison. Now it's going to become blood. The fresh water, the springs and the rivers are going to be turned to blood. Now, does that mean there's no water anywhere? Obviously not, because people are going to continue to exist for some period of time. So there's well water. There's other things that they, they've got cisterns. They've got places they have stored water. Somehow there will be access to water, but it's going to turn everything into blood, everything they depend on, the seas for nourishment, for food, for travel, for commerce, and now fresh water to drink. So now not only are you walking around with Boils and sores and ulcerous, cancerous wounds all over your body, all the fresh water is gone for the most part. God's amping it up. Why? Unrighteousness. See, all of this is about sin, which ought to tell you something about what God thinks about sin. And it's so easy for us to glance by and gloss over and play down sin. Oh, it wasn't that bad. How much does God hate sin? You're seeing it. You're seeing it in its its final and most horrific form, but he hates unrighteousness. Well, then in verse five, there's kind of this interesting aside. It says, I heard an angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. So there's this angel in the midst of this. We've just seen these bowls poured out. Water in the seas turned to blood, fresh water turned to blood, and the angel in charge of the waters, obviously there's some hierarchy and job descriptions up there. He says, you're just for doing this, Holy One. You are right for doing this. You brought these judgments. Why? And this is critical. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets and you have given them blood to drink. Over the centuries, those who spoke for God, the prophets most specifically, The saints over the years have died because of their faith. We saw the tribulation saints up in heaven singing praise to God. Why were they there? Because they took the mark of God and the lamb. They worshiped him and they were beheaded for it. And we see now people on earth, those who worship Antichrist, are being punished for putting these people to death. And Christians have been put to death for centuries Believers in Christ have been persecuted and executed for centuries, but now they get what they deserve. See, it's not unjust. It's not unfair. It's not God just kind of losing control. This is the sovereign God paying back the sins of the unrighteous and specifically at the end of the tribulation. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. See, everything he does is just and right and pure and holy. Again, Paul says in Romans, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why has God redeemed 144,000 Jews who for three and a half years have been going around the world, leading people to Christ? Why has God sent the two witnesses who stood within Jerusalem and who witnessed For a period of three and a half years, and then we're executed. Why has God sent an angel to literally fly around the world in mid heaven declaring the eternal gospel so that people would repent? But we're going to see the majority seem to say no. He says it's because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What kind of judgment? Righteous judgment. Just judgment, well-deserved judgment coming from a holy God. Then he moves on to the fourth. So th- th- it's just interesting. In the middle of these, the angel justifies God. Now, now is God up there going, man, I'm glad so many justified me. I thought maybe I'd done something wrong. No, th- this was for John's sake. Because you got to keep in mind, John's seeing this. He's a human being watching things happen, happening on earth. And even he has to be going... Wow, this is intense. This is really tough. And it's like the angel goes, but it's well-deserved. Don't, don't feel sorry for him, John. Don't, don't. God knows what he's doing. And then here comes the fourth one. The fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. It's getting worse. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So what's going on? We've had bowls poured out on the earth, bowls poured out on the seas, bowls poured out on the fresh water. Now it's the sun and God is upping the ante. He's increasing the intensity of these judgments Because again, let's go back to the fourth trumpet judgment. What happened there? The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So in this case, there was a darkening, a diminishing of the light, but it's going to get replaced with what? An excess of light to where the sun is so bright that people are scorched by it and yet they remain unrepentant. So back with the fourth trumpet, dimin- diminishment of light. Here we have increase in light to the degree that it is so intense that people are literally being burned. Now again, think about those, all those people who bear the mark of the beast, who now bear sores all over their body, oozing cancerous ulcerous sores, now covered with burns. What a great life they're living. But what do they do? They curse God. See, they know it's coming from God. They know he's the one behind it, but they curse him. They refuse him. They don't want anything to do with him. He says, they curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. What what an incredible picture of the stubbornness of man that they would just curse God rather than repent and give him glory. Well, then here comes the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. So you go from intense light, intense heat that's so bright that it burns your skin to suddenly everything gets plunged into darkness. Now, remember, we looked at at a couple of chapters ago when Satan was standing on the seashore. Out of the sea comes who? The Antichrist. And it says that Satan gave to him his power, his throne, and his authority. And this says, this angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast and on his kingdom. What's it talking about? Well, some will say, well, that's, that's the city. It's Babylon, his headquarters, his capital city during the tribulation. I think it refers to his overall kingdom of the earth over which he rules. I think the darkness comes over all the earth because he is ruling the earth at this point in time. He is the big show in town. And so darkness comes over the earth. Intense light, now darkness. And I think this is so appropriate that it's directed at the kingdom of who? Antichrist, who works for and was given power by who? Satan. Satan, the one who rules over this earth, and is the one who brings darkness into the lives of men. I think it's an appropriate punishment. Yes, believing Jews and Gentiles, all those who have not taken the mark of the beast, they're going to be in darkness as well, but they aren't covered with cancerous sores. They're not covered with burn marks because I think they have somehow been preserved. And again, we've seen that in the book of Exodus, that the people living in the land of Goshen were protected from the majority of the plagues. And I think that's what you see here. I think John could have and probably thought about something he had written earlier in his own life. He says this is the ju- judgment in John chapter 3, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You see what John was saying back here is that Jesus Christ came into the world to what bring light into the darkness, and yet people love darkness. So what is God now doing at the end of the end times? He's putting these people in literal darkness. Now they're covered with sores. Now they've got burns on them. They have very little water to drink. They're suffering, they're in agony, and they're living in darkness. And the darkness of sin that once hid them is gonna harm them. It, it's, they went from intense heat, the judgment of God, now into darkness. And it says they're in anguish. They gnaw their tongues. Well, yeah, because you're covered in sores and burns and you're thirsty and they're in anguish. It's all been building. It's all been cumulative. And, and yet, now they're living in darkness. They can't even see one another. They can't even treat their own wounds because they, they can't see them to treat them. It's a What is this a picture of? It's a picture of their eternity. Living in literal hell. Under pain, under torment. Is that difficult to get your head around? Is that hard to imagine a loving God doing that? No doubt about it. But the fact that I have struggled with it and, and have difficulty buying into it because it seems so antithetical, I got to go back to the scriptures. And the scriptures are very, very clear that hell is a real place. Jesus spoke about it persistently. He believed in it. And we need to believe in it because that's where people we know are going to go and spend eternity living in this kind of a state. But what about these people? They curse God. Well, John wrote in one of his, his first letters, God is light and in him is no darkness. See, there's no darkness with God. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the saddest part of this whole story. These people will not receive cleansing from sin or healing from their wounds. From what I can tell reading in chapter 16 on, they will never get over these sores. It's not a short-term deal. They're gonna move into eternity in agony, in pain, in suffering, and with no healing or redemption for their sins. Well, finally, we're gonna stop with the sixth angel and the sixth bowl. He pours it out on the great river Euphrates, and its water is dried up. What's going on here? Well, again, is it the real river Euphrates? Why not? Why wouldn't it be? Why does it have to be a figurative Euphrates? There's no reason in the passage. I think it's the literal Euphrates. It's played a prominent role in the history of Israel from day one. It's played a prominent role in the history of mankind from day one, all the way back to Genesis, because it was one of the rivers that flowed through the Garden of Eden, where man was... Started by God, made by God. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided, became four rivers, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. It's always been around. It's always been important. It was the eastern border of the promised land. Now, if you go read any of the history of the Jews, they never occupied all that land. They never made it that far. But the day is coming when they will. Because it tells us. In Genesis 15, 18, on the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, say to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. They were supposed to have all of that, but they never occupied all of that. So is God a liar? No, we're not done yet. They're gonna get that land. The river Euphrates is huge. It's really important. Here's where it is. It runs from really Mount Ararat all the way down to the sea. What happened on Mount Ararat? That's where the ark stopped after the flood. It's a pretty important place. It's a 17,000 high foot mountain covered with snow year round. Now what's important about that is that there are other mountains in that range and they're all covered with snow year round. And because of the intense heat we've just been talking about, what's going to happen to all that snow? It's going to melt. And it's gonna flood the Euphrates and the Euphrates is gonna become this intractable un- uncrossable river for a period of time. And yet what's gonna happen? It's gonna get dried up. God's gonna dry it up. Well, Ken, that's far-fetched. Really? Hadn't he done this before? Is this like too hard for him? Didn't he dry up the river that they crossed over to flee from the Egyptians? But this one's kind of interesting because he's going to dry it up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And we'll learn more about this in the coming weeks. But this is preparatory. This is not punishment. This is preparatory. God is getting ready to do something. He's getting ready for more action that's going to take place. Because verse 13 tells us something kind of bizarre. It says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. Are they literal frogs? Don't think so. I think this at least is figurative. I don't think frogs are coming out of their mouth. It's symbolic of evil. They they are demonic, we're told in verse 14. They're demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty, the battle of Armageddon. What we see here is something pretty significant taking place. Again, demonic activity, getting kings of the world to gather in one place. And they're going to gather for this battle. The, the reason they're doing it is demonic. Verse 15 says, I am coming like a thief. This is Christ speaking. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be ex- exposed. What's that mean? Be prepared. He's warning the people living on earth, believers in particular, living on earth during the tribulation. Don't fall asleep. Be ready. Something's about to happen. It's coming. And it says, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. It's a literal real real place. It is a huge, massive valley that runs from the west to the east of Jerusalem. You can stand up on, on Mount Megiddo and see it. Napoleon called it the best battleground he had ever seen and it's it's telling us that satanic forces are going to gather these kings from around the world and they're going to gather in this place and god's going to dry up the river euphrates they're coming from the east does that mean it's china does that mean it's japan does that mean it's i don't know i don't even know if they're still going to be around but they're going to come from the east could be it doesn't really matter But they're going to cross this dried up river and they're going to come into this valley in order to do war against God. This is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual impetus. It's real people getting ready to do real war against the real son of God. But we know how it ends. We've already seen it. He's going to demolish them all. It's the great day of the wrath of God. God is going to bring judgment on the world. And we see this predicted in Joel chapter three real quickly. Say to the nations far and wide, get ready for war. Call out your best warriors. Let all your fighting men advance for the attack. Hammer your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Train even your weaklings to be warriors. Come quickly, all you nations everywhere. Gather together in the valley. And now, O Lord, call out your warriors. Let the nations be called to arms. Let them march to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the valley of Megiddo. There I, the Lord, will sit to pronounce judgment on them all. Now look at this, written thousands and thousands of years before what we read last week. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread the grapes, for the winepress is full. The storage vats are overflowing with the wickedness of these people. Thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. That does not mean they're ready to be saved. I grew up Southern Baptist. We always had an altar call, which was a time of decision. That's not what this is. There is no decision on their part to be made. The decision has already been made. The literal word is determination. Their fate is already determined. They're going to die. They're going to be slaughtered by Jesus Christ. And the fate of the world is going to be determined in that valley. And who's going to do it? The son of God. No choices left to be made. They've lined themselves up with the wrong side. I'll close with this. Why are the nations so angry? This this passage fits today, guys. The nations are angry. What are they so angry about? They're angry with God. They're angry with Him having righteous moral rules that He expects us to live by. Why are they so angry? Why do they waste their time with feudal plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. It ain't going to happen. See, Everything we see, unrighteousness all around us, and it's been this way since the fall, is an an attempt to escape the rule, the righteous rule, the rightful rule of a holy God. I don't want you to rule me. I want to rule myself. Well, you can go down that path, but I can tell you you're going to lose because that's what this book tells us. So what are some ways in which we see the nations raging against God and his anointed one today? If you can't come up with something, I need to talk to you. Okay. This should not be hard. What are the signs of their anger against God? It's all around you guys. Just, it's amazing. This chapter has repeatedly shown that the people refuse to repent in spite of knowing what God's wrath, that his wrath has come. What does this teach us about man's love affair with sin? Why is mankind so addicted to sin? And then finally, I want you to read Psalm 2 verses 10 through 12, which follow up the verse that we just read. What's this message that God shares with the kings of the earth and does it relate, how does it relate to what happens at the battle of Armageddon? See guys, this stuff is real. This is not fantasy. This is not fiction. This is not John on mushrooms. This is John being given a vision of things yet to come and it's going to happen. But we live in a day and age where we see so much of this stuff happening around us and I want us to wrestle with it, think about it, but more than anything, rest in the sovereignty of our God. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for their patience, their willingness to come and wrestle through this incredible book. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to just draw us to you and draw us to your son, the reality that he came, he died, he rose again, he's coming again, that you do have a plan for sin, that it's not all gonna stay completely out of control forever. This world does not end with a a disaster in terms of physical crisis, financial crisis, it's not going to end with nuclear war. It's going to end because you choose it to end and you bring it about. So Father, I pray that we would more than anything else worship you, fear you, seek you, serve you in the days that we have left before your son returns. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.